Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you today. If you have your Bibles with you or your Bible app open on your phone, you might want to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's in what we call the wisdom literature part of the Bible. So if you know where Psalms and Proverbs and the book of Job is, you'll find Ecclesiastes in that area. So turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, specifically chapter 3. We're in a series right now, as you see, called Asking for a Friend, where we're answering some of the bigger questions that people inside and outside the church have about matters of faith and life. And if there's one place where it should be the most safe to ask questions, it should be within the church. Amen? So I want everybody here to know that whatever your question is, however big it is, your questions are welcome in this place. Now, it has been said already that we all know tomorrow is Memorial Day, right? Memorial Day was established many years ago as a means for all of us as Americans to honor those men and women who gave their lives in service of our country. And I don't know about you, but it seems like that Memorial Day has evolved from just honoring men and women who were in service who've fallen to really honoring all of our loved ones who've preceded us in death. I know that because when I pass by the cemetery or go to a cemetery this time of year, it's not just fresh flowers and wreaths on the graves of servicemen and women. It's, it's moms and dads and brothers and sisters who never even served. And what's interesting is when you go to the cemetery, whether it's to visit the, the grave of a loved one or to place flowers there, you're confronted with the idea that someday you will have your own grave marker and someone will be coming to plant flowers on your tombstone. This is simply in accordance with what we read in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, where the wise King Solomon says, death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Here's what Solomon is saying. Wise people, when they visit the cemetery, they contemplate, they ponder the fact that their own death is inevitable. And that in that wisdom, in that knowledge of what is inevitable, we start to ask these very deep probing questions in ourselves. Questions like Job asked in Job 14, 14, when he says, when someone dies, will they live again? It's a very, very tender question, isn't it? I know there are those of you who are here today You've buried a child. You're a member of a club you never wanted to be a part of, a club that I pray I'll never have to be a part of. I can't imagine that same child that I helped welcome into this world with open arms is the same child that someday I would have to release back to the earth. Some of you lost a parent when your parent was very young and you were very young and every time you think of them, you wonder how old they would be now, what they would look like, what things you missed out on that you never had a mom or dad there to experience with. This, this whole myriad of questions just start going through your mind when you start to consider the loss of a loved one, whether a child or whether a parent. Because the fact of the matter is this morning, folks, every one of us in this, this room today has lost someone that we deeply love. And if you haven't, it is inevitable that you will. And whenever death comes into our lives, when it takes a close loved one or a friend, what, what it elicits within all of us are all these, 
emotions and these feelings and even these fears that we have when we even think about or contemplate death. And so we want, what we want somebody to do, specifically like me, preachers, we want them to bring a sense of comfort or a sense of hope to help, to help relieve that feeling of pain, to relieve those fears that, we, that have been mustered in us because of the conf- confrontation with death. But here's what I've learned over the years. If I aim at simply hope or comfort, what I might just end up with is just wishful thinking. But if I aim at truth, then hope and comfort gets thrown in. Amen? See, a lot of skeptics and cynics outside these walls look at a gathering of people like us today who are assembled in the name of one who died and rose again. And we have certain beliefs about what lay beyond this life for us. And they would look at us from the outside looking in, saying that the whole reason we have these ideas and these beliefs is simply because we can't deal with the reality that death is the end. So we have to somehow concoct these ideas or this hope that there's an existence somewhere after this life. The question is, is that true? Do our feelings and our hopes for a life after this life, do those simply exist because we want it to be true or because it actually is true? Well, because God's word is our final authority, to it we will go for some answers today about what happens when I die. The book we're going to look at, first and foremost, is the book of Ecclesiastes. It is a book that is the most in your face when it comes to a discussion on life and death. It's gritty. It's very candid. It does not pull any punches. And the reason why a lot of people like the book of Ecclesiastes and relate to it is because Solomon asks and he addresses and he even answers a lot of the same questions that we have in life. And when it comes to death, Solomon says in his wisdom, something that resonates, I think, in the heart of every person here today from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. Here's what he says. He says, he, meaning God, has made everything beautiful in its time. And here's what I want you to catch. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Everybody dies. Every creature is going to cease to exist. But God has put a longing, a hope, a desire for what we would call eternity, the afterlife, or what we would namely call heaven. Now think about that for a moment, okay? One of the most amazing aspects about this natural world that God has created is that he has put within some animals... This, this internal homing instinct that's incredibly accurate. For instance, if you take what we call a homing pigeon, take him somewhere he's never been before, 
is not familiar with the surroundings, throw him up in the air, immediately he'll start to fly in the direction of his home and make it to home because of that way God has wired him, that instinct inside of him. Did you know that dung beetles actually navigate their way home using the Milky Way as their guide? Did you know that salmon leave the ocean and they go to the exact spot in the exact river where they were born and they do this all by using these magnetic waves, all these intricacies that God has wired into these animals to give them this homing device to go back where they belong. Good news for you, friends. Solomon's saying right here very clearly that God has wired human beings with this little homing device in each of us that longs for, yearns for, craves the afterlife, eternity. And this homing device in us whispers to us sometimes death is not the end, there is more. This life is not all that there is. You are not home yet, but there is a home. Is that true? Well, we find in the pages of Scripture that over time, a teaching cropped up in the nation of Israel, this covenant community that God established his covenant with, that he relates to, as kind of a template of what he desires for the rest of humanity, that God wants relationship with us. And God speaks through the prophets of Israel to give them hope about what lie in their future and what can lie in the future of every human being. And here's what the prophet Isaiah wrote many, many thousands of years ago. Isaiah 26, 19 says this, But your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Then we flip over to the pages of another prophet of God, a man named Ezekiel. And he penned a very, very uh, famous prophecy. It was all about these bones that were lying in a valley. Do you remember what kind of bones they were? Does anybody remember? They were dry bones because there was no life in them, right? And here's what the Lord says to Ezekiel. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. So Ezekiel speaks over these bones, and bone starts to connect to bone. You remember the song, right? The hip bone's connected to the thigh bone, and the thigh bone, you know, that song that we know? That's exactly what happens. And there's tendons that start to appear, and there's flesh that wraps these bones. And that which was dead becomes alive again. We have a word for that. It's a word that's unique to the Christian faith. You know what that word is? Resurrection, that God took that which was dead and he breathed life into it once again. And this is a real important word, friends. This is a word that originated with the people of God in Israel, and it was not shared in other cultures or faith systems in the ancient world. 
There was a lot of beliefs back then about what happened when a person died. Some believed that you were reincarnated, that after you died, you would come back to this earthly existence as some other kind of creature and make your way around the world. Others believed that when you died, that you would simply get absorbed back into nature or into the universe as a whole. That you were just like a glass of water that would be poured into the ocean and become part of the greater creation. Others believe that you just simply lived on, not literally, but you lived on in the memory of other people. Or maybe that you lived on in a gentle kind of way, like a breeze that flowing, that flowed or wafted through the air. But you know what that is not? That is not resurrection. Resurrection says you die, God breathes life into you, and you come back as you. You come back as a transformed you that will never die again. You come back into a new world, a new creation that God designed in such a way that God has transformed in such a way that it will defeat suffering and sin and death. That is resurrection. And 2,000 years ago, this little community sprang into existence almost overnight. You know what they were called? Christians, little Christs. And they followed this rabbi, this teacher named Jesus. They followed him because of what he taught and because of how he lived. But then their leader was killed. And their little movement was over. But then three days later, their leader was alive again. And his resurrection breathed life back into their movement. And they were no longer done. They were no longer over but they became heralds of this one who died and rose again. Quite literally, friends, overnight, a new belief system, a new mindset was birthed into humanity about these dramatic and revolutionary ideas of what happens to a person after they die. Because Jesus Resurrection gave them a whole new view of God. It changed the way they saw everything. With the resurrection of Jesus, let me tell you what the early Christians did not expect. They did not expect a crucified Messiah, so they did not expect a resurrected Messiah. So Jesus revealed a God who would die for you so you could live with him. Jesus revealed a crucified God who would stand with you in your suffering so that someday a resurrected you could stand with God in his glory. And that was a new hope that was given birth to them. And this new hope came from when Jesus quite literally said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he proved his authority to make those claims by walking out of his own grave. And that is why Paul, 
writes these unbelievable words in his letter to the Corinthians. Paul, who saw the resurrected Christ in all of his glory, Paul, whose whole worldview, his whole theology was completely and fundamentally changed through this encounter with the risen Christ. And here's what Paul says to all believers in Jesus. So listen to me, folks. If you're in a time right now of hurting, a time of suffering, a time of pain, just allow these words to just wash over you and breathe life into you right now. Here's what he says. When the perishable... That's you and me. We're perishable. We've got a shelf life, okay? Has been clothed with the imperishable. When the mortal, that's you and I, we've got a destination with death, has been with, clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? You know what Paul's saying there? He's saying that homing instinct, that desire that God put in your heart that Solomon writes about, it's spot on. You can trust in it. You can hope in it. You can know that after this life that there's something so much greater that lie beyond and that your faith in Jesus and your trust in Jesus alone will get you there. So that homing instinct that beats in you and I, Paul says, you can trust it. And one day, death is gonna die. And because you are in Christ, forever is your future. So God has placed eternity in the heart of man because ultimately God desires to place man in the heart of eternity. That's our hope. Now as we continue on here, let me answer some of the other questions that surround the greater question of what happens when I die, all right? Because a lot of people wonder, okay, well, Solomon, you're telling me that God is gonna give me a resurrected, glorified body someday, but what happens between the time that I expire in this life, the time that I die in this life, and the time that I get that glorified, resurrected body? What, what, What happens in that kind of intermediate time? Well, the scriptures give us in the New Testament some glimpses into this idea that we can trust in, that we can count on, okay? Paul, who wrote a lot about the resurrection, also gives us some insight, some ideas, some understanding of what happens between life and resurrected, glorified bodies, okay? Here's what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.8. Paul says this very matter-of-factly. We would rather meaning the believer, the follower in Jesus, we would rather be away from these earthly bodies for then we will be at home with the Lord, okay? You might have heard this before saying absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's what Paul's saying, that when my physical body, my earthly body ceases to exist, that I'm in the presence of Jesus himself. My spirit's there, my soul's there, all right? This same Paul kind of, Uh, elaborates on this idea when he's writing to the church at Philippi. You remember when Paul's writing to the church at Philippi? He's in prison. 
He's just kind of beaten down, worn down, tired of this old broken world. He's been used as a tool in Jesus' hand to spread the gospel to countless numbers of people, but it's come at a cost. He suffered greatly for it. And here's what he says. He's got kind of this inner spiritual homesickness going on where he knows that it would be great to be used by Jesus here on this earth, but he longs to go be with Jesus. And here's how he says it. For me, to live is Christ. In other words, as long as I'm upright, as long as I'm living and breathing, it's going to be all about Jesus. I'm not going to talk about, think about, do anything that's not going to point people to Jesus. But then he says, and to die is gain. There's something better for me if I leave this earthly existence. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. In other words, there's going to be a lot of good stuff I can continue to do for Jesus. There's more souls that can be saved. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire, listen to this, to depart and, say it with me, be with Christ. Which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. It's clear here that Paul believed immediately upon his death, he was going to be with the one named Jesus. And even Jesus, as he's hanging in the cross, and he's talking to this repentant thief next to him, do you remember what Jesus says to him? You will be with me in paradise. When? Today. So Jesus is saying, listen, fella, we're both going to expire. Our bodies are going to give out here shortly. That's the purpose of crucifixion. But when your soul departs your body, you can have absolute trust, absolute confidence, that, that homing device that's in you that longs for life after this one, you can trust that today you and I are going to be together just as much as we're together right now. It's going to be just as real. But it's in a place called paradise. Do you remember in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen is preaching about the lordship of Christ and the religious leaders, it says, tore their clothes, closed their ears and rushed at him and they began to stone him to death. And as Stephen's life is ebbing out of him as he's getting close to death. He sees this vision of Jesus standing next to the throne of God. And do you remember what he cries out in his last few words? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen acknowledged his body, his physical body was about to expire, but he believed in and trusted in the fact that his spirit was going to go be with his Lord. Now, some people believe in something that maybe you've heard of before called soul sleep. And that is they believe that upon death, a person's body and their soul, their spirit, remain kind of in a state of unconsciousness, unawareness. And that when the second coming of Christ comes, Jesus will awaken them when they will go to be with Jesus forever. And the reason why they call it soul sleep is because just like when you go to bed at night and you wake up in the morning, you're not really conscious of how much time has passed. 
You just know your last conscious moment was you were awake, then you went to sleep, and then you were awake again, and you don't know if it's been 10 minutes or 10 hours. Sometimes it's passed between the time you went to sleep and the time you awoke. And they say this is what it's going to be like, that our soul and body simply go to sleep. We're not aware of any passing of time. Jesus calls us up, and we awake, and we go be with him. That's why it's called soul sleep. Now, granted, there are places in Scripture where you will read death referred to as going to sleep. All right? But souls don't sleep. Only bodies sleep. In fact, Jesus told a very, very insightful story one time. If you look to Luke 16 sometime, maybe read that this afternoon. I'm not going to go there right now, but maybe go to Luke 16. He tells a story about these two men who died. One man's name was Lazarus. Not the same Lazarus he rose from the dead, but this guy's name happened to be Lazarus as well. And there was a rich man. We don't really know his name. Both of them died, Jesus said, and they were buried Their bodies, their expired bodies were put into the ground. But both of them, Jesus tells us, were very conscious, very aware of the eternal destinations upon which they went. One was in paradise, the other was in torment. But they were very aware of where they were. Their souls were there, but their bodies were buried. Look with me as well at Revelation 6, 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls. There it is again, that word souls. Not the bodies, but the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. These are the martyred saints. These are the men and women of God who'd given their lives because of their proclamation of the gospel. And they faced hostilities and even death because of their passion for Jesus. Listen to this. They, these souls, called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Notice there, I saw the souls of the martyrs. These martyred saints clearly are not asleep. They're conscious, they're aware, they're thinking, they're actually talking, okay? Now, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you would. And you're going to see here what seems like a seeming contradiction, okay? Listen to what Paul writes here. He says, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. Again, he's referring to those who died. That's sometimes how they refer to his death in Scripture. Or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and he rose again. And so we believe, listen to this, that God will bring, keyword here, with Jesus. Somebody's coming with Jesus. Those who have fallen asleep in him. Those who have died. Knowing Jesus. So who's coming back with Jesus? The saints of God. By the way, anytime you see that word saint in the scripture, I know it's not in Paul's text right now, but anytime you see this word saint in scripture, that's talking about you and me. People who know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And Paul says Jesus is bringing the saints of God back with him when he comes. Now listen to this. According to the Lord's Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive who are still left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have, not, who have fallen asleep. 
For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So here's the question that demands an answer. How can the Christians who have died come back with Jesus if they are waiting for Jesus to call them back to life? Here's what I believe. I believe that Scripture teaches, because of what we've already looked at and other places I could take you as well, that the spirit, the soul, the essence of what we are as human beings goes on to be with our creator upon our earthly demise. And then when Christ comes to create a new heaven and a new earth, we will be given resurrected, glorified bodies that will inhabit this new heaven and new earth. My point is this, friends. Nowhere in Scripture do we read about resurrected spirits. We read about resurrected bodies. Is anybody's brain hurting yet in here? This is some deep stuff, okay? So, another question. What will happen when I die? What will that experience be like? Well, it's a huge mystery. But maybe the most comfort we can find comes in the words of Jesus himself who said this. And this will blow your mind. John 8, 51. Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. You know what I wonder if what that means is this. Because we all know that we're going to die. But I wonder if it means where Jesus is talking here that when a follower of mine dies, their conscious experience will not be interrupted one nanosecond. That just like when you blink your eyes and open them again and you've not lost consciousness, that in that fragment of a time is all that's going to be the difference between life in this world and life with your creator. I've quoted Dallas Willard before, who was a very prolific thinker and said a lot of profound things about the Christian faith. He was a deep, deep, deep follower of Jesus. He died of pancreatic cancer a few years ago. And as he was nearing his death with cancer, he made this statement. You know, when I die, I think it may be sometime before I know it. Just think about that for a minute. That my body's going to give out, but I'm not even going to be aware of it until some time later because of that consciousness that I just don't lose and the immediacy at which I'm with the Lord. You know what I also find comfort in? In a psalm written thousands of years ago where the psalmist said in Psalm 116, 15, here's what he said, precious, in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It's a precious moment. It's tender. God's deeply involved in that moment when one of his children passes from this life to the next. I love the story about an old bishop who used to teach children what death was like. He said to them, children, just imagine a little boy who's going to town with his father. 
And he and his father come to a place where there used to be a bridge, but the raging waters of the river have washed out the bridge, and all that's left are all these little pylons jutting up out of the water. So the father grabs his son, half drags him, half carries him all across the pylons to the other side of the river. They conduct their business in town. They come back that evening when it's dark, and the father hears his little son start to whimper. And he says, what's wrong, son? The boy says, oh, daddy, we barely made it across when we had the daylight to see, and now it's dark, and we're never going to be able to make it back across the river. The father simply scoops his son up into his arms, and the boy falls asleep on his chest. The next thing the little boy realizes is that it's morning. He's in his own home, in his own bed, and there is his father standing, smiling at him in the doorway. And the bishop would say, now, kids, I think that's what it's like to die, that we go to sleep in the father's arms, and we wake up in the father's house with the light of the father's love shining on us, that what we fear, we never really experience. You know why, even though that's just a story, why I think we can put some weight into that? Because Jesus' greatest command to his followers was two words. Do you remember what those words were? What were they? Fear not. I've got a belief, friends, that that doesn't just apply to this earthly existence, but it also applies to the things of the next world as well. So, we've answered some questions biblically about the intermediate place between death and resurrected body, the idea of what happens to us when we die. Here's a question I want to pose to you, though. How shall we then live in light of that which is imminent and inevitable? Paul tells us, Right after he gives the great discourse, thanks be to God who gives us the victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul says. Here's how he ends 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That everything you do in the name of Jesus is ultimately achieving something in the kingdom of Jesus. So listen to me this morning, folks. When you have trouble, when you're sick, when you're scared, when you're alone, when you feel like you failed, what you do in the Lord is never, ever in vain. Let me quote to you what N.T. Wright writes in his great book called Surprised by Hope, where he talks about life, death, and resurrection. Here's what he says, and I quote, you are not oil in the wheels of a machine that is about to roll over a cliff. You are not restoring a painting that is about to be thrown into a fire. You are, as strange as it may seem, accomplishing something that will be part of God's new world. Every act of love 
gratitude and kindness, every work of art and music inspired by God, every minute spent teaching a handicapped child to read, walk, or laugh, every deed that spreads the gospel of Jesus, every prayer ever prayed, every gift ever given, every holy thought, every gracious word, all of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation God will someday make. Amen? So you know what N.T. Wright's telling us here? That we aren't just consumers of hope. We get to be vessels of hope. We get to be billboards and signposts of hope. We get to be beacons of hope. We get to proclaim to the world that we can be together again someday with those that we've loved and those that we've lost, those who followed us in faith and they loved the Lord and they walked with the Lord and we're someday gonna be with them. And that great story we're going to be a part of is never going to have an ending. That every chapter we experience in the kingdom of God somehow, some way, and only a way that God can do is going to be a million times greater than the chapter we experienced before. And with each chapter that we experience in his kingdom, it's just going to keep getting better and better and better and better. That's for those people who believe in, trust in, walk with, talk with, surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That is what I believe happens when you die. And here's what I'm aware of today. That in this group today, there are those men and there are those women who would not call yourself a Christ follower because you've never made that decision to follow Jesus And let me just tell you very candidly this morning, if that's you, I have absolutely not one word of encouragement for you as you face death. Because everything I read about death, everything I read about the hope of life, everything I read about eternity, everything I read about resurrection all revolves around one person and one person alone. And his name is Jesus, the one who said, I am the way. Every other way is gonna lead to death and futility. I am the truth. Every other path is a path of deception and it's gonna lead you in the wrong place. And I am the life. Every other way of the human heart is ultimately gonna lead to death. He's the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He's the one who said, I hold the keys of death. Do you know him? If you don't, today is the day you can tap into that homing instinct that God put into your heart and you say, Lord Jesus, save me. Make this to be true and real to me in a way that only you can. If that's your desire today, we're gonna sing a few songs now. If you just join us in the back porch today as you prepare for a time to express your faith in Christ, the way, the truth, the life. Won't you stand with me now for a word of prayer?